20 Schemes is the church planting ministry of Nidri Community Church in Edinburgh, Scotland and Redeemer Fellowship Church in Bardstown, Kentucky. I'm Mez McConnell and this is the 20 Schemes podcast. Cool, right, welcome. I'm here today with Andrew Murray. Andy, can I call you Andrew or is it Andrew? Andy, it's been Andy traditionally, but... Uh, right, because some people uh, are very particular. Andy's got a bit complicated in recent years. But well, that's because the tennis player. Thankfully, he's retiring. Are so you related to the tennis player? Not that I'm aware of, no. All right, so Andy Murray, you... Uh, just tell us about just a bit about what you do, where you're from, just so people yeah, know. Yeah, so originally from Argyll, uh, Oban and Argyll. Uh, Dad was a minister up there for a few years. Um, been in social work for 25 years and uh, currently working for... A Christian charity called Safe Families for Children uh, that provide uh, support to families going through a crisis. We recruit and train volunteers, mainly from churches, to get alongside families in crisis. Yeah, and we've got a couple of volunteers in our church, right? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Cool. So you've had to read this book, Confession of Faith, Westminster's uh, Confession of Faith. So this is the Free Church of Scotland's Confession of Faith. Yeah. Or the Church of Scotland, or both. Yeah, so it had originally been the Church of Scotland. Um, the Free Church came out of the Church of Scotland in 1843. Um, so we would still very much adhere to the Confession of Faith. So are you in a Free Church? Where yeah. do you worship? Livingston Free Church. Okay, cool. Out in West Lothian. I don't know if I've been there. Who's your minister? A guy called Nigel Anderson. I don't know if I've heard of Nigel. One of your guys, Lewis Macaulay, preached for us a few months ago. How did that go? Well, yeah, it went well. Doing all right, isn't he, Lewis? Spoke about 20 schemes. After church fellowship, him and Susanna spoke about 20 schemes. So we regularly pray for you guys. Well, listen, we appreciate it. Anyway, look, we're going to talk about whatever comes into my head. But uh, I am a massive fan, mainly, not of his certain aspects of his theology, but mainly of Thomas Guthrie. And uh, we started... um, a theological training program here in the church. She's been going. How long has it been going? So when do we? Yeah, so we launched it in September. So we're just coming up to the end of the first term, uh, and we called it um, the Ragged School of Theology. <laughs> Invariably, every single person asked me where I got the name from, and actually, one English group that wanted to support us financially even inquired as to whether I would change <coughs> the name to make it better um, until I said, no, I won't um, because it's named after Guthrie's Ragged School. So why don't you fill people in, because you're a bit of a Guthrie expert, right? And you run a blog called... Ragged Theology. Get onto Ragged Theology. That's where I go for all my info, by the way, on, on, on Guthrie and stuff. Um, so just tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Thomas Guthrie. Because most people, even even Scottish dudes, I did it. Sorry, I, I did a lecture a few years ago at the Free Church College, some like special lecture on something, and I said, "Put your hands up if you heard of Thomas Guthrie." And less than half the room put their hand up, which I found shocking. But anyway, tell me how you got involved with him. Yeah, so <clears throat> I suppose I came to a bit of a kind of crisis of faith about ten years ago, where I began to kind of question what the church was, um, particularly what the free church was. And I began to, I suppose, go back to original sources and began to read some of the free church fathers, Chalmers and Guthrie. And um, I read uh, Guthrie's memoirs um, 
he started an autobiography, he didn't finish it, and his sons wrote a memoir of him. Hmm. And Is this it? Yep, that's it. Just completely blew me away. I just um so just have a look. Autobiography and memoir of Thomas Guthrie by his sons. Is it still in print? No. So it's never it's never been it's never been back in print as far as I'm aware. Right. Um in the twentieth century. Huh. And um I was just completely blown away by it. It was it was um full of passion, full of a lot of humour. Um and it described a guy that was just driven for the gospel. Um a guy who had thought through his theology in terms of um the gospel but also um work amongst the poor. He he was an enthusiastic church planter. Um incredible preacher, great auditor. Um and I suppose if I'm being honest, uh, I saw um quite a different church from what the free church um has become. And I was just I was shocked that people didn't know about this and about two thousand twelve I began blogging about it and just started putting some of the material out in the public domain and it was received pretty enthusiastically. And I just kept doing more and more research and um I wrote a series of articles and eventually published a small booklet called A Mission of Mercy. Um and this picture on the front <coughs> is hanging in the National Portrait Gallery okay. uh, in Queen Street. And this is Guthrie at the top of the lawn market. Uh, Guthrie was six foot two. He was called Lang Tam. And uh, this is him at the top of the lawn market with some ragged children. Ragged because they were in rags. And in the background you've got one of the dram shops of the Victorian era with Presumably their parents, you know, mm. falling out of the dram shop drunk. Um, I think it's quite iconic that St Giles is in the background, so the church is in the background, the dram shop's in the background, um, and Guthrie's kind of um, surrounded by these ragged children that she had, had so much compassion for. So Thomas Guthrie re- estimated... It was estimated there was about a 1,000 um, street children in Edinburgh in the 1840s who... Um, pretty much lived in the streets. They were, they, many of them had parents, but the parents were, um, were drunk all the time. They very often sent their children out to sell matches. Um, at the very worst, prostitute themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Guthrie was called to Edinburgh in eighteen thirty-seven, he was horrified by the sight of these children who were all around where his. First so where was his, where was his church or his parish when he got, when he was called? Yeah, so Guthrie was in a rural parish up in Angus, up in okay. um, a place called Arburlot, which was near... So way out of Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, interestingly, he was, in a, he was in a country parish with about a thousand people. And um, I think Guthrie says in his memoirs that every single person in the parish came to church apart from one, I think. Or everyone was connected with the church, at mm-hmm. least. Um, but interestingly enough, one of the first things Guthrie did was... Um, so the first thing he did was he set up a savings bank and he set up a library, both in the manse, so that he could have weekly contact with people in the parish. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also, through the savings bank, he wanted to teach people the values of honesty and you know hard work and how to save and all these things. But he says in his memoirs that 
the, the library and the savings bank brought him into weekly contact with his parishioners so he could get to know them properly. One of the other things he did was he abolished or he um, cancelled the, the evening service. So he preached in the morning and in the evening he set up a catechism class for 15 to 25 year olds. So what he would do is he would, he would go over his morning service and then he would work his way through the shorter catechism. And how did that go down, cancelling his evening service? Uh, it, cost, it caused a bit of controversy, I think, but... Um, I came to Nidri yeah, 12 years ago, I cancelled the evening service, and they almost lynched me in the street for it. Yep. So that must have been massively controversial. Yeah, he then. just felt that there was so much doctrinal ignorance that he, he wanted to categorise the young, and um, he says in his memoirs, he says it was the most, the most fruitful thing he ever did in his ministry. Hmm. And um, teaching young people doctrine had a profound effect on the parish. Um, so, <clears throat> so he was called to, just going back a bit further back into his background, interestingly enough, Guthrie was regarded as one of the greatest preachers of his generation, along with Thomas Chalmers. Uh, so were they roughly the same age, these two dudes? No, so Chalmers was a good bit older than Guthrie. Okay. I think Chalmers died in about 1845, was it? 1846? You know better than me, I'm useless with the um, dates. So... Uh, Chalmers was a don as well, though. I, I mean, he he was a, another good guy, right? Yeah, so I think I came across a word when I was doing research for this, but I mean, Chalmers would be regarded as one of the last of the great polymaths. So Guthrie, uh, Chalmers was an expert in numerous disciplines. Hmm. He was as comfortable in science as in politics, as in theology. Um, he could comfortably... Um, work in all these disciplines <clears throat> and to a lesser extent Guthrie was the same uh, he was um, very influ influential in politics social philanthropy great preacher you know all these different disciplines um, the thing I was just going to say is interestingly enough Guthrie um, once he'd been he went to university ridiculously early he went at the age of 12 which was common in those days so he did um, literature and philosophy, and then he did theology. And he did a, he did a couple of years of lectures in, in medicine, just out of interest. But then it, it's, it, took, it was five years before he was called to a charge. <clears throat> I just think it's interesting, given that he was such a, he went on to be such a great preacher, and he spent five years in kind of the wilderness. So what was he doing during those five years? Yeah, so um, he went out to France for a, uh, almost a year. Hmm. Um, really interesting stuff in, 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 in his memoirs about France um, he went back to work in his father's savings bank uh, back in Dundee um, a few other things um, but, but many, not in ministry so he wasn't in preaching in France no he was in the Soborn so he was um, he was it's a school right learning but yeah. it wasn't theology so he's got a lot of interesting reflections about his trip to France um, but it's, I think I think some of those challenges prepared him, I think, for the ministry. But he was called to Arburlot in eighteen thirty, and then in eighteen thirty seven he was called to Old Grey Friars in Edinburgh. That the one with the Doug. Yep. So it was a a, a collegiate charge. So he was a, he was an assistant uh, to a guy called John S Sim, and um, Guthrie talks about looking out onto this congregation, and he said he saw all these. You know, well-dressed, outwardly wealthy people, and you couldn't understand where the poor were. And um, in those days, a lot of churches would have had a couple of pews at the back, which were actually signed 
the pauper's pews. And if you didn't dress well, you know, if you're a if a pauper, you, you know, you'd sit there and. Is that a bit like segregation in um, the states? Blacks only and whites only, is it? Yeah, I suppose so. And so if what if you what if you were a pauper and you walked in and sat on a and not a pauper's pew, what was the crack then? Yeah, I suppose it'd be frowned on. But the thing was, obviously, because of the stigmatisation, people didn't come into church. Um, no. So these pews were empty most of the time. Huh. So uh, Guthrie started taking afternoon services down in the Cowgate in um, Magdalen Chapel. And um, that was where he discovered the poor, you know. Um, but they didn't want to come to the, the rich person's church and... Um, you know, That's a familiar ring to it, that. Guthrie was just moved with compassion on the masses of the Cowgate. It was the time of the Industrial Revolution, so yeah. uh, massive overcrowding, horrendous addiction <laughs> issues, um, huge poverty. That's before the dawn of schemes, right? They sort of followed the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, so um, massive overcrowding in the, the centre of Edinburgh. Yeah. And uh, Guthrie decided to church plant... Um, in those days, this is pre-disruption, pre the Church of Scotland had a um, really strong vision for church planting, so they were talking about you know church planting right throughout the Cowgate Valley. Hmm. Um, and Guthrie had this vision for um, the parochial system or the territorial system, which was effectively church planting almost street by street. <clears throat> so even though he was the minister of Ogre Fires, he planted effectively two streets away in Victoria Terrace. Hmm. So... The church plant was St John's, where he planted about um, 18, 1840, 1841. And um, very radically in those days, he, he didn't, he chose to open the church out to everybody, rich and poor alike. So no pauper seats? No pauper seats, no pew rents. Pew rents were very common in those days. You, you know, you rented your pew. Uh, so Guthrie went against the grain and he... He'd Why did you rent your pew? Explain that to us. I think it was just uh, uh, I think in those days the that that partly paid for the salary of the minister. I think, um, and also the salary was paid out of um, the kind of in effect the local authority, the kind of council. I think. Okay. Um, but Guthrie very radically opened the whole church out to everybody. Um, he wanted the local parish church to be like you know the village well. He said. Rich and poor, I like drink from it, you know. Um, and then he rented out the balcony, I think, to richer people. By this time, Guthrie was a well-known name. People were coming to hear him preach. Um, people wanted to hear him preach. Did it work? Yeah. So did, was it was it still segregation, though, if the poor were downstairs and the rich were in the balcony? I don't think so. I think by that time, there was much, much more of a mixing. Um, was it? But in terms of church planting, Guthrie had a really strong vision for for the local community. Um, he sent the deacons out, the, the elders out visiting on Sunday afternoons. And this is where the whole idea of the kind of... Um, a la Richard Baxter, right? The sort yeah. of reform pastor, because he predates, well predates that, doesn't he? So around this time, a couple of things happened. So um, he talks in his memoirs of going up to um, a place in Fife and he sees a picture of a guy called John Pounds who's from Portsmouth or Plymouth, I can never remember the, which one it was. And there was a picture of this guy who who was a cobbler and he'd been um, badly um, disabled in an accident. He was, I think he was a shipbuilder and he'd fallen. 
so he was a cobbler and what he did was he, he took um, orphan kids in and taught them how to repair shoes. Hmm. And Guthrie quite humorously in his memoirs talks about John Pounds walking around the quay with baked potatoes in his jacket. And these guys, these kids coming in to get fed and then he teaches them a trade. Um, so they, these guys get an industry and then they, you know, they get a job and so on. And he, he talks about being incredibly inspired by this picture. Um, and just around this time, there's a guy called Sheriff Watson in Aberdeen. But 1841 launches the first sort of industrial school for sort of juvenile delinquents hmm. because so many so many kids were in prison in those days hmm. <clears throat> and both those things kind of inspired Guthrie to do something himself and um, the kind of disruption around 1843 overtook those that vision and it wasn't until kind Just of explain the disruption to our non-Scottish viewers so in very in a, in a paragraph <laughs> good luck yeah, so there'd been a kind of 10-year controversy in the Church of Scotland through the 1830s and into the 1840s, um, which ultimately led to the, the disruption in 1843 when around about 450 ministers walked out of the Church of Scotland and set up the Free Church of Scotland, the Church of Scotland Free. It was around things like um, patronage, who could call a minister, whether that was down to the local landowner or whether it was down to the local con congregation. Um, it was very much the evangelical party within the Church of, Church of Scotland that, that came out. Um, so for the next couple of years, around about 500 um, people didn't have manses and churches. And so was, was Guthrie involved in the disruption? Was he yeah. one of the guys yeah. who walked? Yeah. Chalmers, obviously, too. Yeah. So one of the things that Guthrie was very famous for was for the manse fund. <clears throat> So the, the Free Church wanted to raise, I think it was about £100,000 for new manses and churches. Uh, and Guthrie was given that job and he spent a year touring the country and eventually smashed the target and raised way, way beyond £100,000. There's very moving stories of um, Guthrie himself preaching to open-air congregations with the snow and the rain coming down and um, congregations that had nowhere to, to worship, you know. So... Guthrie undertook that um, that huge task, but in that process, it kind of pretty much broke his health, mm. uh, and for the rest of his life, he, he suffered from a kind of weak heart. Um, but basically, as soon as he'd done that project of the Man's Fund through kind of forty five, forty six, he he wrote a booklet called um, a plea for ragged schools, which was published in eighteen forty seven. Guthrie talks about coming back from the printers, sort of head in his hands, thinking, what, what am I doing? I'm not an author. Um, this is a disaster. Why did I submit this manuscript? And then he talks about the effect of publishing the booklet as a spark amongst combustibles. Mm. He, lit, he lit the fuse and he started getting letters from all over the country, all over the world. Hundreds of pounds started pouring in and around about 1847 a committee was formed and the Ragged School, uh, the original Edinburgh Ragged School was formed. They rented a schoolhouse right beside the castle, which is now uh, in Camera Obscura. Hmm. Yeah, I know that. And um, carved into the fire escape of Camera Obscura uh, is the text, Search the Scriptures. And so that was the original... Explain what a 
ragged school was, what his general thesis was, what, what, what was a ragged school? It seems like a, a weird name to people who don't understand. I often get the same thing. Why is it called, why are you calling your thing ragged school? Yeah, so the vision for a ragged school was that Guthrie, Guthrie believed in the family and he believed that at all costs you should keep the family together. Um, he didn't believe in withdrawing kids from the family. But what he saw in Edinburgh was that these kids were just wandering the streets, they were getting involved in crime, they were um, getting involved in prostitution. The guy who was the governor of the, of the Edinburgh jail at the time, a guy called Smith, he wrote a letter in 1845 and he estimated that there were 750 uh, kids who were under 14 in the Edinburgh jail in those days. Hmm. I think about 400 of them were under 10. Um, and Guthrie very movingly says, you know, why are we spending all this money once the guy's leg is broken? when we could avoid it being broken in the first place. He was one of the first social philanthropists that said, you know, wh why are we spending all this money over here when we could you spend it? on prevention, right? Prevention, yeah. Prevention and early intervention. And, um, and how was it received racket school? I mean, obviously, lots of people liked it. I'm going to assume lots of people didn't like it. Yeah, so just let me just first of all explain, in terms of ragged school, so Guthrie's vision was that you take kids in for like a, a 12 hour school day, they come in for breakfast, you feed them, you train them, you teach them, he described as, as secular and sacred um, education. You give them simple Bible teaching, but you also teach them the three R's, um, but you also give them, an, give them a, an industry. So the boys would have been taught joinery, they would have been taught um, there was also ten. There was ten ragged ships, hmm. all across the country. So these guys would have been taught how to be sailors, for example. Um, the girls in those days would have been taught how to be um, seamstresses. Um, they would have been taught for being uh, servants in, in wealthier homes. <coughs> um, so it was industry. It was education. Um, it was food. They talked about eight o'clock in the morning, they did their ablutions, basically washed. So they got a good wash. Who financed it all? So um, there was a committee formed, and it was completely across the churches. All the churches were represented. It wasn't just a free church thing. Guthrie got a lot of criticism in the early days. People said this is a free church thing. Um, just going back a couple of steps. So Guthrie, we had the disruption. Guthrie left St John's, they worshipped in the Methodist church in Nicholson Square and Guthrie built a new church which at the time was called St John's which is now St Columbus Free Church. Okay. So if you visit St Columbus Free Church there's a hall downstairs. Mm -hmm. So Guthrie uh, talked to his elders and said what can we do with this, with, with this hall? So um, somebody came up with the idea <coughs> of creating an industrial feeding school. And Guthrie discussed it with his elders. They bought a porridge pan and a, a soup making pan. And the elders got cold feet. Hmm. They said, we can't have these delinquents coming into our church. Uh, Guthrie talks in his memoirs. He was uh, completely downhearted. He was you know, just at a loss. And 
just after that he then wrote a plea for ragged schools and he talks about having kind of been rejected at a local level it was then embraced at a kind of national level and he talks about how in God's providence it was actually it was better because it was actually I wonder what his elders made of that right <laughs> yeah um, so the question was was there much opposition so there was there was, there was a controversy that overtook uh, the ragged schools almost at the very start um, so about half the ragged children were kind of Irish descent and there was a lot of controversy around the fact that um, uh, they were kind of indoctrinating Catholic children that was one of the controversies right. um, and Guthrie had to deal with that quite early on uh, and Guthrie very robustly said you know he said Kids come into our school, they're at liberty to go to any church they want. We teach simple um, Bible doctrine. It's not free church doctrine. We don't teach the shorter catechism. Um, but, you know, he said <coughs> the Catholic Church are free to, to, to open their own schools, but uh, we will take any kids in from any background, any religion. Uh, but Did we, the Catholic Church oppose it or not? Secularists? I, don't, I don't think really. I think, it was, I think it was one or two people just stirring up trouble. Um, as per. And um, there was a public meeting and it was all aired very openly. And how, how did, I like to bounce about, you like to go linear. This is hilarious, this interview, because you like to go in a straight <laughs> line. Um, how did, what what did Guth, uh, sorry, what did Chalmers make of it? So I've read a few quotes where they appear to be t together discussing it, or, or am I getting confused? What? Yeah. Was Chalmers a fan of <clears throat> the Ragged School? Did they support it? So I'm, I'm not a, an expert on Chalmers, but um, I've done some reading around Chalmers, but Chalmers did an experiment in um, Glasgow and St John's, I think it was, a parish in St John's, where he... He did the 20 parish thing, right? Yeah, so... <clears throat> but, I mean, Guthrie would have been very much... He very much followed in, in Chalmers' footsteps in the, in the parochial, territorial system. Yeah. Um, he would have defined the territorial or parochial system as um, a church on the doorstep of a, of a parish, open to all um, elders and deacons visiting systematically the area, and a parish school open to all. I think that's how they defined the kind of parochial system. And Guthrie openly says that, you know, when he, when he planted St John's, he was, he was following the model that had been laid down by Chalmers. Um, mm. But the ragged school thing was much more about Guthrie rather than Chalmers. Yeah. So the first one was in Edinburgh in 1847, if I yeah, remember rightly. Um, and then <coughs> they rapidly sped across the country. Yeah. So how many do we have in Scotland? You know? I'm, not sure, I'm not sure the final number. Um, you know, I saw one in Wales, I sent you a picture. Yeah. I didn't realise we were in Wales and someone said they saw one in England somewhere. Yeah, so the, the sort of... So Gu Guthrie never claimed that he was the first ragged school, so he would have said that Sheriff Watson was right. the inspiration, and also this guy John Pounds down in England. Right. Yeah. Okay. What Guthrie did was Guthrie was a um, Guthrie gave kind of voice, and he was a figurehead of the movement. Yeah. And somebody, you know, um, called him the apostle of the ragged school movement in Scotland. And then people like Lord Shaftesbury took it up in England, and it kind of became a whole movement. And Guthrie became became a sort of national speaker on behalf of, of the ragged school movement. 
What's interesting, if there was, there was three editions of A Plea for Ragged Schools. There was three pamphlets that were eventually put into one book. Um, <clears throat> but the interesting thing about people like Guthrie and Chalmers is that um, they were very analytical. So they were very keen to say, yes, this is a movement of compassion, Christian love. But if you read the plea for ragged schools, it was also incredibly analytical. They actually got statistics of from the Edinburgh prison, um, and they tracked a, the reduction in kids in Edinburgh prison over mm. several years, and they and they actually um, evaluated the work. That's what would be the word nowadays. They evaluated the work and the effect it had in terms of prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, and Guthrie spoke a lot about how much money it saved, you know. Um, he went down to Westminster, he appeared before committees, and he was very instrumental in bringing about legislation that came in. Um, so they were they were very into evaluation and analysis, and Chalmers did a lot of analysis of the parish scheme in Glasgow and said, you know, X number of people were in the poor house or the workhouse, mm-hmm. whatever it was called, uh, and now, through the work of this church, you know, so much money is being saved to the equivalent of the local authority, the parish council in those days. Yeah, we've done something similar here, actually. You'd be surprised how much <laughs> one person who's been claiming social all their life has got their kids in care or whatever, have got um, various amounts of um, care workers, and yet when they come to Christ, they get themselves together, they get a job. What it saves the state Absolutely. is enormous. I think we counted one person, it was about 50,000 a year they were getting in all their benefits, and once they stopped doing that and actually were paying into the system. But um, yeah, it's interesting uh, that sort of analysis. You probably need to get somebody who's more of a theologian in to talk about the establishment principle. But I mean, Guthrie believed very much in the endowment of the state, and he believed that uh, he looked for the endowment of the state in terms of. Of planting churches in really poor areas because he genuinely believed the effect would be incredible in terms so endowment of, of the estate. What you mean that the state pay for it? Yeah, the state would pay for some of it. Um, that would be hilarious today, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, it's just such a different time, I suppose. But um, so anyway, I mean, it's a brief history. I won't, I won't jump all into it, but um, ragged schools went for a considerable period of time. I think. Was I reading somewhere the last one in Scotland shut in the 80s, or is that my imagination? Yeah, so, um, so the original Dr Guthrie school, um, <clears throat> the boys moved out to Liberton, which is now an old folks home. Right. Um, you can still see a plaque there. Hmm. And the girls' school set up in the, what's now the Faith Mission College, uh, but it closed in the 1980s. Sounds very similar to the boy fair... Who's the guy for Bristol who set up all those kids' homes? Um, you know what I mean, don't you? George Muller, was it? George Muller, mm. right. He did something very, quite similar, although these he's were more homes, weren't they, for, yeah. for kids. But um, Okay, so anyway, just to <coughs> go back to your original point, one of the reasons you got into Guthrie's, because you're having this sort of crisis about the local church, um, and then you started getting into Guthrie, you started reading about all this stuff, and so... How did this stuff form or change or help your vision of the local church now? Yeah, so uh, um, 
just a few years before that, 2006, actually, I joined Bethany Christian Trust. Became very involved in... Just explain uh, Bethany Christian Trust, people. Yeah, know. so Bethany Christian Trust is a homeless organisation. Um, seeks to relieve the suffering and meet the long-term needs of homeless and vulnerable people. Um, and again, that really challenged me as to the whole theology around helping the poor and the church's role in that. And um, I suppose I've been on a journey over the last 12 years on that. Um, done a lot of reading, seen a lot of really good work, seen a lot of pretty dreadful work as well. Um, read a lot of stuff around it. Read a book called Church in Hard Places recently. Dreadful. Uh, which was good. But you can see how we, or that book, attempts to build theologically on the principles of Ragged School, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because there's nothing new in that book whatsoever. Not a thing. That's what? There's nothing new in that book whatsoever. No, absolutely. Yeah. If anything, it, it's copying. I didn't realise we 20 Schemes was copying Chalmers' model until I read a bit of history on Chalmers and saw yeah. that parish model and thought, actually, there's nothing new under the sun at all, is there? Really interestingly, 30 years ago, I was with the Edinburgh City Mission. Yeah. And I was involved in this mission hall at the time, on this site. In Nidri? Yeah. Okay, the old mission. And um, Mr Dunbar, that, those yeah. years. And it was it was heading for closure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to see this 30 years on, you know, and to, to chat to the guys about what's been done differently. Um, I think when I... I spoke here two years ago. I think I had a conversation with Andy Constable. The co my co-pastor, yeah. Your right-hand man. Um, and he talked about a number of things. He, he talked about a really strong vision, which, of course, Guthrie and Chalmers had. Um, really strong discipleship pathway, which I think has been missing from so many churches for so many years. The church open pretty much seven days a week. Mm -hmm. um, relevant to the lives of people, not just on a Sunday. Really strong investment in women's work. Um, whole team ministry, mm -hmm. which Guthrie was very passionate about. Um, and again, I think the modern church has lost. Uh, so many good quotes I could pull out, but you know, Guthrie um, and Chalmers spoke about this as well, the power of littles. There's a, a fantastic quote Guthrie's got, you know, he talks about, you know, individual atoms. He says, put all those atoms together into a huge hammer and, you know, the, the workman strikes the anvil or whatever. You know, you've got power. And he says, I think as you say in your book on Church in Hard Places, you know, you've got people with different gifts and skills in the church that individually and sometimes perhaps part of a parachurch organisation are less effective, but bring them together in the church and they can have a huge effect on a Mm -hmm. uh, a local area, you know. Um, but Guthrie believed in a role for every single member of the congregation. Amen. Um, and particularly women, um, which again he was really ahead, ahead of his time. Guthrie's, Guthrie's mother uh, was a seceder, which is a whole different podcast. <laughs> uh, Scottish Christian history and politics is... A whole 500 different podcasts. Yeah. If you're going to talk about the seceders and the Marrow Conspiracy, can I recommend Sinclair Ferguson rather than me? He's, 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 the, he's the best guy again. Um, but she was a really strong seceder and she was, she was really well educated and she was very, very political. She was very involved in politics. 
Um, and Guthrie, as was quite common in that time, he didn't talk a lot about his conversion, or, uh, <clears throat> but he talks a lot about his mum, and he talks a lot about his mum teaching him when he was a kid, and he talks about his mum's strong principles. She's very strong in things like, you know, the Lord's Day, keeping the Lord's Day special, and... Um, but the seceders would have been very, very strong in biblical authority, and and that 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 was just drummed into Guthrie at a young age. Um, but she would have been she'd have been seen as quite a um, just quite a strong woman for her time, I think. And Guthrie seemed to always have this element in his ministry where he 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 strongly believed in women's role in the church, that they had a strong place to play. Um, and of course, the whole movement of the industrial feeding schools sort of outreach Sunday schools. Um, you know, in the Victorian era, a lot of those would have been run by women, you know, but they would have had a profound effect on generations of young people, mm-hmm. you know. So, I mean, we've got, I don't mean, three church, we've got three church part of 20 schemes in the north, in Burness, you know Chris Davison? Yeah, I know Chris well. Been the Merkins, they're doing a good job. We, um, what else have we got? Oh, there's one other. Who's the other? Oh no, we're training a young, yeah, we're training a young Presbyterian guy right now. So he's quite hilarious. Uh, so a Reformed Baptist, uh, paying You've for training a young Presbyterian boy to go and plant a Presbyterian church. Lewis Macaulay's a. Oh, Lewis is a Baptist. Oh. Unlucky, he went over to the other side. Yeah. But we um, and so the, I I I'm quite encouraging that 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 the, the free church. Uh, Guys, it's at least some of these young guys who've got a heart, a heart for it now. But I'm always baffled um, um, by lots of Presbyterian guys that I meet um, who have no real knowledge of Guthrie or Chalmers. Uh, why do you think that is? I find that not that I know anything about everything about Baptist history, so, but I just find it fascinating because they're just such they loom so large on the sort of whole church history and theological landscape. I, I just don't know how you could yeah. not know who they are or, or what they did. I mean, I think it's a 20th century problem. We just, 21st century problem. We just, we don't know our history. I mean, yeah. people just don't study history anymore on a whole range of levels, but yeah. particularly church history. I mean, um, I know Andy Constable gets in one about that. So we have, we have to give him a whole church history track for the ragged schools. And I've, just, cool. I've just finished um the whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson on the Marrow controversy, you know, right. the whole debate in the kind of 18th century about legalism and antinomianism and preaching the free offer and so on, and you know these issues are these issues are very relevant for us today, you know, and um, all the stuff that Guthrie and Chalmers dealt with about how we develop a theology to reach out to the poor and so on, so relevant today. Well, um, why do you think theologically conservative, particularly reformed? Evangelicals, regardless whether they're Presbyterian or Baptist, why do you think they're largely so divorced from poor communities and schemes today? Why do you think that is, given the history that we share? I think my own perception is that when a church becomes um, small and threatened, uh, we can often retreat into a kind of bunker Hmm. theology and mindset. I think that's what I would say. And what strikes me about Guthrie and what just blew me away when I read his memoirs was just this guy was involved in every strata of society. He was involved in every sphere. He seemed to have no fear. Um, 
Praise the Lord, right? To set up, you know, a ragged school to appear before Westminster committees. Um, the amazing thing about Guthrie was, you know, he became a he became a a national, international name by the nineteen the eighteen forties. He was still he was still pastorally visiting the Cowgate day by day. Hmm. He was seeing death daily. He was seeing horrific poverty on a daily basis. He was touching brokenness on a daily basis. But still preaching to vast crowds, you know, having huge influence in the corridors of power. Um, and I think that kept him incredibly rooted. Um, and I just find when I chat to pastors today, I find the whole model of ministry pretty interesting. I think in the reform world, preaching has become quite academic. Um, I think quite a lot of pastors are quite detached from the areas they live in and preaching. Um, I think there's a lot of hand-wringing goes on about how we reach out into our communities. Um, you hear things like, you know, we've tried to deliver leaflets and it just has no effect and um, we've got a good website, things like that, you know, and really getting involved and getting alongside the brokenness in our communities, um, as you say in your book, is difficult and messy and long term yep. and, and involves huge cost. Um, and I think we want to kind of hold on to what we've got. Um, and there's a fear of saying, well, why don't we plant in a new area? Why don't we revitalise this church in a new area or whatever? Um, I think ultimately what I'd say is what we're lacking and what I think is, is true of Guthrie and Chalmers is just really strong gospel vision. These guys just seem to... You know, leadership's about not seeing the world as it is, but the way you want it to be, or, you know. And that's what guys like Guthrie and Chalmers did. They said, you know, places like the Cowgate, I mean, they're just... They're broken. Yeah. But... No, I agree. With gospel eyes, we can see, I think as he says, we can um, turn this into an Eden. You know, it's um, there's a very famous story about Guthrie and Chalmers where Guthrie was apparently standing on George IV Bridge and Chalmers came up behind them and, you know, a very famous quote about, you know, Guthrie looking at the, the cow gate with, you know, you know and just this squalor and mess and overcrowding and, you know, Chalmers sort of encouraging to say, you know, through 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 gospel efforts, this can be transformed, you know, and as it was, you know, with his church planting and so on. Amen. What we need is more Guffreys and Chalmers for our generation, don't absolutely, we? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Little cheeky lessons there on um, Thomas Guthrie. Time goes quick, doesn't it? With these conversations, we're trying to expose some of the issues we experience in our ministries. We hope that with honest and frank conversations, we can begin to open up on some of the hard realities of church planting and revitalisation in schemes and council estates around the UK. In fact, even around the world. In this spirit, these conversations will be published completely uncut.